Thanks, Todd. Hey, good morning. Good morning. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and um, I'm glad you're here. You really wanted to be here today, so especially if they're visiting, right? It's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. So glad you're here. Um, don't think you're here by accident, so glad. Hope you'll run right into what God has for you. If you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we will be. We started Corinthians last fall, and we got all the way to chapter 8, took a break for Christmas, came back last week, picked it back up beginning in chapter 9, uh, where Paul was a little bit ticked off at the, at the Corinthians, and um, we, we pick up kind of what was going on in, here in chapter 10. At eight, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, they go together. In chapter 8, Paul's talking about this principle that, um, listen, you have a, a lot of freedom in the Christian life to live in the way the Spirit leads you, and, and, but, but your knowledge of God's Word and your conscience are not the most important things. Your love for others trumps all of that. Uh, in fact, you know, in your life, God is first place. Others are second place. You are last place. That's how we view our, our, our life as a believer. So that's what he's saying. In, in chapter 9, he was talking about, um, you know, Paul has his own rights. He has rights for all kinds of things, but he would give up his rights for the sake of the gospel. He wanted uh, more than his freedom to be expressed. He would rather lay down much of his life, all of his life, if it meant he had the opportunity to share the gospel. And so we, we are seeing all of that. And then here in chapter 10, Paul's going to pick up with a discussion on idolatry and the danger of idolatry in the life of the Corinthian church. So let me define idolatry for you, idolatry. Then I'm going to read a couple of verses, and we'll talk about them, and then we'll read a couple more until we run out of time, all right? Um, here is how N.T. Wright, I'm, I'm taking some of this from him, the lion's share of it. Here's, here's how he defines idolatry. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world. Do you see what he's saying? You, we become like what we worship. We begin to look like what we worship. We begin to project to others what it is that we worship. He goes on and says this, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of money and increasingly treat other people as creditors or debtors or partners or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of sexuality preferences, practices, histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential objects. Those who worship power 
define themselves in terms of power and treat other people as either collaborators or competitors or pawns. He ends this way. He says, there are these and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. So what he's saying is, look, we become like the things that we worship. We become like the things that have captured and hold our attention. Those things in which we set our desires, we become like them. And Paul's going to say this morning, we are all in danger of being idolaters. He's really going to say we all actually are idolaters, and we need to flee from being idolaters. And I know you're sitting here this morning, you think, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any little statues in my house. I, you know, I don't, I don't have any little figurines that I worship, and, um, and, and I get that. And so, and I think it's good. I think you should continue for a little while to tell yourself, I'm not an idolater. Do that. That'll work out well for you here in just a minute, all right? So here's what he does. Look at uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, brothers and sisters. And when he says that, you can tell it's like pastoral Paul has come back. You know, so last week he's ranting and he's yelling and he's got all these uh, uh, you know, rhetorical questions, you know, piling them on. He was all worked up last week in chapter 9. He's, he's calmed down. Pastoral Paul. These are brothers and sisters again, believers. And so he, I, I, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. So, so I want you to be aware of something. I want you to know something. I want you, this is a sort of an understated way to say, I want you to absolutely, clearly, completely get the point of what I'm about to say. And so what Paul's going to do in chapter 10 is he's going to say, look, the Israelites, you know, the Israelites, the ones that God rescued out of Egypt, he delivered them. He brought them, you know, this salvation out of the slavery that they were in. You know, led them by Moses and stole them away, ransomed them away from Pharaoh, brought them through the great sea, provided for them in the wilderness. These people who were the epitome of God's people and the ones who were the object of God's blessings and generosities, and they had all these advantages. These people, Paul's going to say, you're a lot like these people. And so he's going to point out, hey, there's five sort of advantages, five blessings that they had, and then he's going to point to five warnings. And all of these, the Corinthians are to read with themselves in mind, and actually, we're to read with ourselves in mind. So he says this, verse 1, but I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to make sure you know this, brothers, that our fathers... He's speaking about the Old Testament Testament believers, Old Testament saints. That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. So part of what he's doing is called typology. He's going to say in verse 6, these, these, this is all an example. They're examples for us to take note of. That what happened to them is very much like what we are experiencing now. And so when he talks about, you know, under the cloud, he's, he's speaking about, so God's Shekinah glory. He guided them and he protected them. Remember the the uh, cloud by day and the fire by night. And, and so God led them through the wilderness, this, this guidance and this protection. We experience that from God. He guides us and He protects us. And His promise, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. He is near. Notice in Verse 2, he says, and, uh, and all were baptized, or, or first passed through the sea there at the end of 10, and then all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so when it's passed through the sea, there's this deliverance. So not only the guidance and, and the protection, there's, we've delivered from the bondage of slavery, and then they're baptized into Moses. And that means this union with Moses. They, had a, they were united to Moses, who was God's leader. And and they were led by Moses, who was their Savior. And it correlates to what it is for us to be baptized into the body of Christ. Christ who is our head. He is our leader. He is our Savior. We are united to Christ, the Bible says. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. God's saving work. He does through his son, Jesus. In verses 3 and 4, he's remembering, you know, the same, we all ate the same spiritual food. He's remembering the manna that God provided, the provision. And we all drank the same spiritual drink. He's remembering when God in Exodus and then again in Numbers provided that water in the midst of a dry and weary land. And in fact, he picks up on that and says, in fact, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. There was the spiritual food and spiritual drink and a spiritual rock. And you have Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the living water. Paul's picking up on all these things. The, the Israelites, they had all these advantages. Hey, Corinthians, hey, Bethel, we have all these advantages. We have the deliverance and the guidance and the protection. We're united with Christ. We have His provision. In fact, some commentators think what's in Paul's mind, and I, I agree with them because of what comes at the end, is that he has in mind that when, when we gather and, and we observe baptism as a church, and we celebrate that. 
than when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion together. That Paul has these in mind because we've We've come together, and what we're doing in baptism and what we're doing in communion is we're reminding ourselves that we didn't save ourselves. We're not here to earn our way to God. We're here because Jesus has made the way for us to be with Him. We're not here to try to reconcile to God. We're here because we are reconciled to God. We're not here in an effort to save ourselves. We're here because we have been saved by Jesus. And so we remember that. That's why I remember I was on this trip. I was sitting here thinking, am I going to tell this or not? And I'm already here. So we were, Eric and I, we had been on, we were on the scouting trip and we were at this um, we were in Turkey, and we were visiting the ruins of a synagogue, and the guy kept calling it a church, and just driving me crazy, and, and then he was saying, he's like, you know, we, we ought to throw out baptism and throw out communion, because those, you know, those things, um, you know, they're so archaic, what we need to bring back is the washing of feet into the church, and I'm not against washing feet, I mean, I said, well, it's not exactly true, I mean, it's biblical, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, but, I mean, feet are nasty, right? I mean, that's the whole deal. But the idea is that washing feet is that, you know, when we gather, that the idea is that we've gathered to come and to serve each other, all right? And, and, and I'm not saying that there's an aspect of that that's wrong. We, we do gather, and part of what we do is we end up serving each other, particularly with the spiritual gifts that we have. But we're not building this deal on coming together and serving each other. However advantageous that is as a byproduct of why we have gathered, that is not why we have gathered. We are not gathering here based upon what we can do for each other. And so that's not what we've come to remember. We've come to remember what it is that Jesus has done to save us. That's the picture of baptism. His death and his burial and his resurrection to new life. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 4, and in verse 5, and in verse 6 and 7 and 8, that we identify when we are baptized, we're saying that this physical thing, this, this wedding, the dunking of my body and getting drenched with water, it is a physical symbol. It is an outward symbol of what has taken place inside of me. That I've been baptized into the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and raised to new life. I am a new creation because of Jesus. And when we rehearse the Lord's Supper, these symbolizes the shedding of blood and the breaking of his body. He's offered himself. He has substituted himself for us. And we remember that and celebrate it. That's why we 
have got. And Paul is saying here, look, we have all these advantages and, and, and more, really, than the Israelites. We're just the same. And then notice verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, you might have a footnote in your Bible there on overthrown, and you look down at it and it says, laid low, which is a good old King James way of sterilizing. God killed them. They died. Their bleached bones were laid in the desert. You know how many of all of the people that came out of uh, Egypt, rescued by God, entered into the blessing that God intended for them? You know how many? Two out of millions. So when it says they were overthrown in the wilderness... They died there. They had all of these advantages and all of these blessings. Nevertheless, they did not experience the blessing that God intended them to experience. And Paul is saying, hey, Corinthian church, you're in that same danger. You and I are in that same danger. Now, he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's not talking about you no longer being named in the people of God if you are, in fact, a believer in Christ. He's not saying that. But you are in great danger of missing out on and losing the blessing that God has for you, this spiritual reward. And I'm not talking about getting rich right now. In fact, if you do, you probably should just write that whole check to the church is what I'm saying. Still the first quarter. It'd be great to knock it out of the park. But this is, this is eternal reward, which is infinitely better than anything you could accumulate here and now. So look at what he, what he says. Um, so in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. And then he's going to... So, these are those five blessings. Now, let me give you five warnings based on their life. Let me show you how these people, these people who are God's people, forfeited the blessing that God had for them. Now, these things took place. There was an example for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. This is the first one. Paul says, hey, listen. They were people who desired evil. Now, if you say you had the ability to talk to one of those people that wandered in the wilderness, do a retrospective or a documentary, or you, we dug up some old eight-track tapes, and that's probably what they used. And on it, they were being interviewed and being asked, hey, um, Paul here to the Corinthians said about you, you were one who desired evil. I have no doubt many of those men and women would say, you know, I, I know Paul said that, but I, 
I don't know that I would say about myself that I desired evil. I don't know that if you were to interview any of the Corinthians, they'd say, I, I, Paul, I don't know, I, I'm not desiring evil. And Paul would say, yes, you are. Maybe little known to you, but the pursuit of your life, how you're living is so out of sync with who you are as a believer. It can be described as nothing else than the desire for evil, the craving for evil. Paul means to stab us awake with this. He, he wants us to be alarmed this morning. Look at verse 7. Do not be, this is the second warning, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, here's, here's what he's doing. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, it's 32.6, but you go back to Exodus 32, and Exodus 32 is the scene where um, M Moses has gone up to, the, to Mount Sinai for the second time, and the Israelites are around, and they're like, we don't know if Moses is going to come back. Maybe he's just gone. We don't know. He's been gone a few days. We're unsure if he's coming back. And the people come to Aaron, who's Moses' brother, and they say to him, Aaron, you know what we need? And Aaron says, no, um, oh, people of God, what do you need? And they say, we need something to worship. And Aaron says, huh, I have just the thing. Give me all your jewelry. So they do. He puts it in a fire, pours it out, and, and, a, and makes it. how he tells Moses this. He says, I just put it in all of a sudden, it jumped out a big golden calf. Not only that, he builds an altar before the calf. And then once he has the calf, you know, fashioned this golden calf and the altar, he says to the people, tomorrow, everybody wake up early and come out here. And what we're going to do is we are going to have a feast to the Lord. The problem is the Ten Commandments are... Like, they're hot off the press here, all right? And the first two commandments are this. Have no other gods before me, and don't make any graven images, which means don't make something with your own hands and then call it by my name and worship it and think you're worshiping me, God says. It's even worse than that, if you can imagine it being worse than that. Because the verse that Paul quotes from Exodus 32, 6, says, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And see, we're just like regular English speakers who, you know, don't know Greek, don't understand what the Hebrew meaning is behind that. And we think, oh, well, they had a picnic and then did playtime. It's not really what it means. 
when you go back and see how the word is used in Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, it means they ate and they drank and then they had an orgy. That's what it means. Don't be idolaters. See, the issue, part of the issue was they, they thought about themselves. They thought this. Paul, we have all freedom in Christ. You said that. We're free, 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 free. Um, you even said in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. We had all the freedom in the world. Liberty. And Paul says, yeah, I, you're right. I did say that. I didn't mean what you're doing. Because here's what they were doing. They were saying, Paul, you said there's no, you know, no big deal about the meat that's been offered to idols because idols aren't really real. You know, there's, not any, there's only one true God. And so we decided we really liked that and we were going to go um, with the best place that they serve that meat is at the buffet at the uh, temple to one of those idols. It's great. You got to try it. All you can eat buffet you just go there anytime. The problem is that buffet was located in a strip club. That's, that's how it worked. The thousand temple prostitutes. And they're trying to tell Paul, no, 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 it's all right. We have all the freedom in the world. It's no big deal that we just happen to be eating in a strip club. And Paul says, see, I, I don't think you understand what I mean. You're using your freedom... To, to get as close to the line as, of sin as you possibly can. That's how you have defined it, which is really no freedom at all. You're a hair's breadth from being a slave to that from which God has saved you from. The freedom you have in Christ is to walk away from that. Freedom you have... From Christ is to not be under the power of that sin anymore. The freedom to serve him and to love others and to be happy in your life. That's the kind of freedom I'm talking about. And more than that, I would never do anything in my freedom that would jeopardize the gospel or get in the way of, of somebody else. I, I choose others over myself. Don't be idolaters, which leads him to verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. He's gone from uh, Exodus chapter 32. Now he's in Numbers 25. When the Israelites began to hang out with the daughters of Moab, and the daughters of Moab said, hey, we want you to come to our church or our temple. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, what gods do you serve? Oh, don't worry about it. Just come on. One thing leads to another. And they got more than they bargained for, and boom, God killed them. Verse 9, look at what he says in verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. This comes from Numbers 21. 
They were speaking against God and speaking against Moses. They were being impatient. They accused God of bringing them to the wilderness to die. Their complaining hearts showed them to be self-focused. They thought they knew better than God. So, God answers their complaints with poisonous snakes. Verse 10, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. He's pointing back to number 16 when God disciplined his people with a plague of death. And then verse 11, now these things happened to them as as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Hey, Corinthians, I want you to be clear. These Israelites, they had all the advantages and all the blessings, and yet they died in the wilderness. More so than that, they were idolaters who God, in his judgment, disciplined his people. And here are four instances he disciplined them with a death. Now, let me say as an aside for a minute. Can God still discipline his children with death? Yes, that's the answer. Paul's interest is not paralyzing you with fear. His interest is waking you up so that you would be sober to the impact of sin in your life. Now, just so we're clear, if you walk out of here and you get on Facebook and you begin to say, hey, my preacher said he knows why this person you love died. I will... Don't do that, okay? That'd be terrible. I was about to say something, but then I realized that could be administered, admitted into a court of law, and that would be terrible at the end. Don't do that. That's not what, you don't get to know that. God hasn't told us that. Can God still do that? Does God still do that? I believe that he does. In certain instances, you can go to Acts chapter 5, and you can see right at the beginning of the church, God did it with Ananias and Sapphira. It's not for us to point out there and go, oh, I know why this person got judged or whatever. Paul's not meaning for you to look and go about those people. He means you to look right here in the mirror. He's wanting you to focus on you and realize that while it is true as a believer in Christ, Romans 8.1 says there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ, meaning you cannot suffer eternal punishment, but oh man, can God discipline you right now. And he is serious about the sin in your life. And and when I hear believers and they talk about 
you know, the freedom in Christ and all the things they can do. And, you know, uh, people, you know, sometimes the debate goes, well, you know, how, you know, how much can I actually sin? I mean, how much can I actually get away with? You know, I mean, you know, the people want to know, how, how much can I actually do? And, and Paul says, you're focused on entirely the wrong thing. And to be focused on that, like how much can you actually get away with in life and still be considered a believer? Tells me you probably aren't a believer in the first place. That's what Paul would say. He's concerned about the sin in their life. Now, look, look at what he does. In verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I mean, they were priding themselves on being so sophisticated and so knowledgeable. And a bunch of them had seminary degrees. And just because you go to church and just because you can point to the ways in which you serve. You know, you, you got a children's Bethel kids shirt, you know, and you got that because you, you serve, and, and you think, well, I did this, and I did this, and I give money, and I'm, and I'm night, you know, and I didn't only, and I didn't say that many bad words last week. I mean, whatever it is you're pointing to, to go, I'm probably okay. What they were doing is they were like, look, we're taking communion. We've been baptized. We're golden. Paul says, look, every single one of us as believers, we're not just a series of steps away from blowing it. We're all one decision away. And he wants us to wake up to that. Look at how he says it in verse 13. This is encouraging to us. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. There is no temptation that you have that isn't common. There's no temptation you have that you can say, man, nobody's ever been tempted like this. This is the worst temptation in the whole world. No. I promise you. Brothers and sisters in Christ have been tempted just the same way as you are. Walked through it just the same way as you are. And then notice what he says. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Everyone is susceptible. Everyone is a target. Everyone has temptations. And the word heed there, he means look at something. And then he gives an encouragement. says, okay, Corinthians, you're faced with all kinds of trials and all kinds of temptations. But notice, God promises that he is faithful and he provides a way of escape from the temptation. 
It's a story about a little boy. He's at a, like a convenience store and he's standing over by the candy. It looked like the clerk's watching him. looked like he was going to put some candy in his pocket. Kids are standing there. The guy's just looking. Finally, he says, hey, <laughs> looks like you're trying to take some candy. The boy replied, you're wrong, mister. I'm trying not to. I'm standing here trying not to take the candy. See, the temptations that you run into, they're common. But God's faithful. He will make the way of avoiding the temptation. He will make way for you to escape. Paul's asking him, will you avail yourself to this God-given way out? He's asking us this morning, will we? See, part of the Corinthian problem, of course, was some of them... In the face of the temptation, they weren't looking for a way out by endurance. They were looking for a way in indulgence. They were looking for reasons to indulge. I fear that's probably not much different than today. Well, verse 15, he says, Look, I'm speaking to you as sensible people, judge what I say. You are so wise, Corinthians. I'm speaking to you as wise people. So now you judge. And then he says in 16 through 17, here's what he's, or 16 through 22, here's what he's going to say. We have, when we come together, we come together around the Lord's table. When we come together around the Lord's table, we participate with each other. He's going to use that word several times. It means fellowship. It is the intimacy of what it is that we come together and we share a cup and we share the bread and we take this communion and we, we're one with each other and we're one with Christ and we're remembering and we're rehearsing all that it is that Christ did for us and, and we come together and so he, he's part of what he's saying is we can't do this all alone if you're all alone you're you're toast you can't do this all you've got to come together in the intimacy and the fellowship and the communion of the body of Christ if you're here this morning and you don't have someone that you can pick up the phone and call and go, I'm in the middle of a temptation. I'm the little boy standing in the convenience store trying not to steal the candy. If you don't have that person, would you begin right now, January the 14th, 2024, would you pray that God would bring that person into your life? Or several people, maybe it's, Maybe it's a Bible study, a group of women or, or men that you get with every week, or somebody in a life group. I need that person. I, I'm losing. If you don't have anybody, I'm going to tell you, you're, all, you're losing. You know you're losing. You're losing. Your life is a string of defeats that you're looking back on with great regret. And you're trying to do it on your own, and you can't do it on your own. Paul says you can't do it on your own. But he's also going to make another point. So look at what he says. Two minutes. Five pages left. Here we go. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, 
Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. And then he points back and says, well, consider the Israelites. It was the same with them. Are they not those who eat the sacrifice, participants in the altar? What do I imply then, verse 19, that food offered to idols is anything? Paul's saying, am I worried about that food that's offered to idols? I'm not worried about the food. I'm not worried about the food. Or that an idol's anything? I'm not even worried about idols. Here's what I am worried about. Look at verse 20. No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul doesn't tell us nearly enough here, in my opinion. Like, I have a thousand questions for Paul. He's not interested in answering them. The Holy Spirit is not interested in all of my curiosities about this. What he's interested in Holy Spirit wants me to wake up. Listen, he's, there aren't any other gods. There is only one God, the one true God. But behind the temptations to the sins of our idolatry are demons and demonic power. And Paul leaves it there and says, I don't want you to participate with demons. You can't participate with demons and also share the cup of fellowship in Christ. You can't do both. You're forfeiting one when you partake in the other. That's sobering, isn't it? It should wake us up. Here's how it works, and here's how you get out of it. One of the ways that idolatry works in our life, and um, it's not the only way, but one of the ways, it, it, take this from something the right road. He says, the first thing you do, this is how you create a false religion. This is how you create an idol for yourself. First of all, you define your own personal hell, not the real hell, not the hell where you are separated for eternity in torment from the living God. Not that hell, but your own personal living hell. You know, maybe your hell's being fat. Maybe your hell's being ugly or being lonely or being poor or being unappreciated. Whatever it is. This is my personal hell. I cannot live with it any longer. And then what you do after defining what your personal hell is, we don't ever do this that formally, right? But it's how we operate. We go out looking for a savior that will save us from our hell. If my hell is poverty, then money is my savior. If my hell is loneliness. Some relationship or perversion of relationship is usually the savior. Your savior that will get you out of hell 
But the problem is the idols that we think will make us happy, those saviors we think will make us happy, they don't. They leave us worse than where we were from the beginning. John Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory. And we can just pump them out. And we we do it a lot of times with things that are even good. We take things that are good, perfectly good gifts from God. We turn them around and make idols of them. And as we pursue those, they lead us away from the one true God. That is what Paul says, no less than demonic activity in our life. To keep us from looking like the God who saved us. And more and more like the idols we're after. How do we get out of it? Well, this believing that God meets us right here in the midst of our ordinary life. Believing, as the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we are. He wrestled with everything that, everything that humans wrestled with. He never caved into idolatry. And because of him, God continues to meet us in our everyday, ordinary, sometimes, oftentimes, boring lives. And how do we participate with Jesus? How are we one with him? How do we taste that fellowship? Well, we, we do that with each other. Come around the table of fellowship. We come around God's word. We, we embrace what it is to be the body of Christ. Can't do it alone. Secondly, believing and realizing, knowing God meets us at the level of our desire. No temptations overtaken us. That's not common demand. God is faithful. You, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide the way of escape. Do you believe it? Will you search for it? Will you cling to it? Will you cry out to him for the way of escape? Here's the third thing I'd say. God's faithful and just. What I mean is that when you fall, when you fail, 1 John 1.8 says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But when you fail, that you'd run to him. Because he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness because his son Jesus, who died for your sin, is seated at the right hand of the Father advocating for you. No, I died for that. Forgive them. Cleanse them. Take that from them. I've already paid the price for it. Run to him. I'll tell you, it's the last thing I'll say. Some of you this morning just need some time and get alone and Make it quiet and say, Holy Spirit, please examine my heart and my life. Because you're walking out of fellowship. There's 
There's sin in your life and you're not confessing it. You're managing it. Trying to do away with it. Doing your own penance for it. Just Listen, bow your head. Go to God and trust that as you confess that sin, it's handled, it's taken care of. He's cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Whatever consequences are here and in the now, those are fine. You take them, you endure those. Those don't go away. But your fellowship can be restored before you leave this building this morning. Would you go to him to do that? Your rock, your bread of life, your living water. All right, I'm so out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I pray that your word would would diagnose us this morning. Father, with the with the divine and supernatural skill of our sovereign surgeon and savior, would you would you with the sword of your word, the double-edged sword, come right into the heart of our mind and heart and life. And Father, help to cut out the idolatry and the sin and the spiritual sickness that, that we've let fester and keep us from fellowship. Father, convict us this morning where we need to be convicted. Encourage us this morning that in the temptations that await us this afternoon, you are faithful, you are there. You're providing the way of escape. Give us eyes to see it and hearts that would long for it. And we ask this the only way we can because of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you would, would you stand with me and we'll be dismissed. May the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you. See you next week.